If you'd please take your Bibles and open to Micah chapter 6. We've had a few uh, breaks and interruptions along the way, but we are still journeying together through God's Word. And I hope that you are reading along with us. Uh, we are just a second day into Job at the moment, but today we're going to go back and pick up one of our prophets, the prophet Micah. But let me just kind of give us a, a review of the story so far. God created a world, a world that He filled with beauty and order and life. And He made us, human beings, in His image and commissioned us to be His representatives, to rule the world on His behalf, to use the creative powers that God has given us for the life-giving work that would bring more beauty, more order to God's good world. But humans were given a choice. We had a choice to make as to how we would carry out the work that God has given us to do. We could either partner with God according to His definition of what is good and evil, or we could seize that power for ourselves and rule according to our own definition of what is right and wrong. And God warned that if that's the path that we chose, it would mean death and it would mean decay in His very good creation. And that's unfortunately exactly what the first humans did and what we all have done ever since. And so the world descended into chaos that led to violence and murder and oppression, disease and disasters and death. And in the story, it culminates in Genesis with this, this ultimate rebellion of humanity at a place called Babel. And out of the rubble of the incident at Babel came the family of Abraham and Sarah, called by God to be the parents of a new kind of people, a nation of priests who would fulfill humanity's original purpose to be God's representatives to the world. And like Adam and Eve, Israel had a choice as to how they would live as a nation. And depending on their choice, they would either enjoy life and blessing in the land or cursing and exile. Like Adam and Eve, Israel gave into the temptation to redefine what is good and evil, right and wrong, on their own terms apart from God. Even their best kings, men like David and Solomon, gave in to Satan's lies. And so God sent these men called prophets, like Isaiah, who we've heard from, and Micah that we're going to look at today. And God sent them to warn His people to change their ways or be destroyed as a nation and be carried off into exile. So that brings us to Micah. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. They lived during turbulent times. The Assyrians were breathing down the necks of Israel. The nation was on high alert, but those in power continued to take advantage of the poor and the weak and the defenseless. Morals were low. The government was decadent. Courts were corrupt. They favored the wealthy and the powerful. Religion was formulistic. And the nation had lost its integrity. They were worried about the Assyrians, but not worried enough to change their ways and turn back to God. But God still sent His prophet Micah to them to speak to them, to call them to repentance. And Micah's prophecy is uncompromising. It's pretty hard-hitting. He steps on some toes big time. But it's not just a toe-stepping sermon for Israel. It's one for us as well. Read with me in Micah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. 
Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up and plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against His people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you. Also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And then we change voices. Somebody else is speaking. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Like we saw back in Isaiah chapter 1, here in Micah chapter 6, God is essentially taking His people to court with all of creation as witness and jury. In verse 1, God is challenging Israel to make their case. And then in verse 2, it's God's turn to make His accusations against Israel. What are the charges? Well, we see them in verses 3 through 5. God lays out His case. Israel has forgotten God's blessings. They act like God is the guilty party, like He has somehow mistreated them. When in reality, God is the one who rescued them from slavery in Egypt, who made them into a nation, who gave them leaders like Moses and Aaron and Miriam. He gave them laws and priests and prophets. He protected them. He provided for them. He guided them. God calls them my people. Because that's who they are. And He calls His people to remember. And one thing that they needed to remember as God's people is their purpose. They had forgotten their purpose. So let's read one of their, you might call it their founding documents of sorts. And it is really sort of their purpose statement. And it's God's covenant promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, where God told Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, Israel was chosen and blessed by God in order to be a blessing to the rest of the world. Now, being chosen and blessed by God, being God's partners in His mission to redeem the world, His ambassadors to the rest of the nations, that was Israel's responsibility. That was their purpose. That's why God put them there. And that's a purpose and a mission that now lies on us, the church. We are also God's ambassadors. We carry with us a message of reconciliation. We as Christians are called to partner with God in making disciples of all nations. So as we read this morning about Israel's failures and the challenges that the prophet Micah gives to them, let's not get up on our high horse and look down our noses at Israel. 
because we can be just as guilty as they are. This is a message for us, the church, today. God is accusing Israel of no longer living and working for His glory. They're no longer living and working for the betterment of the world. Instead, they have taken God's blessings for granted as if it's their due, as if God somehow owes it to them. They, they sort of have this uh, entitlement mentality. And they are not interested in God's glory, but their own. Like, like at the Tower of Babel, they want to make a great name for themselves. See, God expected much from Israel because He had given them much. Being chosen and being blessed is certainly a privilege, but it's first and foremost a responsibility. And they had neglected their responsibility. So in verses 6 through 7, Israel uh, answers back. When I stopped and said we have a change in voice, now it's as if Israel's attorney has taken the stand. And he's going to answer these charges that God has brought against them. And we see in this that, that they completely miss the point. That this counter-argument questions God almost with this note of sarcasm. You can almost hint since this sarcasm in what the speaker is saying. The attitude here is that God is being way too demanding. He's being unreasonable. God's expectations just aren't realistic. Aren't burnt offerings enough? That's what he leads with. And, and really, when you think about it, one of the first things God commanded Israel at Mount Sinai was to offer burnt offerings. It's the first thing that Noah did when he stepped foot off the ark. It's the first thing that Abraham did when God called him to be the father of a mighty nation. So one of the most basic things God's people can offer is a burnt offering. Today we might say, isn't coming to church on Sunday morning enough? Sort of that, that bare, basic thing you expect Christians to do. That's what they start with. What else do you want, God? How about thousands of rams? What about... 10,000 rivers of oil. Here the speaker is engaging in hyperbole. You know, he's exaggerating beyond reason what would please God as if mocking the sacrificial system itself. You know, again, today you might say, you know, you want me at church 24-7, 365 days a week? You want more than just my tithe? What about my whole paycheck, God? That's what they're answering back to the Lord with. Doesn't anything satisfy you? Maybe God won't be happy with us until we sacrifice our firstborn sons. Would the blood of our children cover the stain of our sins? And this is especially offensive. I mean, they've really, they've really kind of stepped over the line here because God explicitly forbade child or human sacrifice. In fact, child sacrifice was one of the things that the Canaanites did that God said He was judging them for when Israel came to possess the land. It was one of the things the prophets were rebuking them for. They said, look, God is going to judge you because you've started to offer your children to Molech. you started to sacrifice your children. So for them to suggest that that's what God wants them to do was truly a spit in God's face. Basically, Israel is arguing that nothing they can do is ever enough to satisfy God. They think they have followed all the laws and observed all the rituals and given all the necessary offerings and still God's going to judge them. That's not enough. What more do you want? What more can we give you, God? The irony here is that Israel's right. 
Their attitude may not be right, but their point is true. All the rams and oil in the world wouldn't be enough to satisfy God's holiness. Nothing they can do, nothing they can give could ever be sufficient to make restitution for their sins. Not even the death of their firstborn sons would be enough. What God's people had forgotten, though, was that God wasn't really interested in their burnt offerings or in the sacrifices or the the rams or the oil. What God really wanted was them. He wanted them. He wanted their hearts. He wanted their minds. They knew deep down what God really wanted. They knew that what, what God was really looking for. It's not things that God wants us to give Him. It's us that He wants. In Psalm 51, in David's prayer of repentance and confession after his adultery and, and having Uriah killed, he says this, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it, you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. David got it. He knew what God really wanted. Now, in Amos chapter 5, if you can flip over, it will be on the screen as well, but in Amos chapter 5, God, this is a totally different prophecy, but really what God says here, I can imagine being an answer to the charges that Israel just made against Him. You know, the whole, you know, what do you want, God? Is it not enough that we do this and that we do that and that we come to church and that we give all these offerings? And is that not enough, God? You can just imagine this also being a response. In verse 21, God says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. You get a sense of how ridiculous God thinks this list of demands that Israel thinks God has on them is. It's like God says, really? You think that's what's important to me? I can't stand those things. I don't want you to do those things anymore. When God's people do religious things without a relationship with Him, it's offensive to God. When you try to do religious things apart from a relationship with God, it's a farce. It breaks God's heart. It disgusts Him. Because in verse 24, God tells us what He really wants from us. But let justice... Roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. Similar to what he said in Micah 6 8. When he says, He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What God demands is right character, right living, not religious form, not meaningless sacrifices and rituals, and they are meaningless and offensive to God if we are not reflecting His character in our lives. That's why the Apostle Paul urges us to examine ourselves before we come to this table. 
Because if we eat and drink this, thinking that this religious ritual will make us good with God while we are treating other people unjustly, while we harbor unforgiveness and hatred in our heart, it's an offense to God. That's why Jesus said, if you come to the altar with your gift and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift and go make it right with your brother, then come back and offer it. Because God is far more interested with what we do Monday through Saturday than with what we do from 10.45 to noon on a Sunday morning. God is looking for so much more than Sunday morning religion. He wants day-to-day reality. Lives who are reflecting His image in the world. Hearts that are seeking after Him in practical expressions of justice and righteousness and mercy. That's what God wants. And it isn't just God's desire for Israel. He says He has showed you, O man, the Hebrew word there is Adam. The word for humanity. This isn't just God's expectation of Israel. This is God's expectation for everyone. This is how God created us to be. And the expectation is simple. It's threefold. First, it's act justly. Literally, it says in Hebrew, do justice. Do justice. Do what is fair. Do what is just. In Micah 3.1, if you'll look there, Micah 3.1, it says, uh, Then I said, Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice? God had this expectation that Israelites' leaders would know justice. But in the next verse, it tells us that God accuses them of being people who hate good and love evil. He says, You who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones. The leaders are devouring the people. They see them as commodities. They see them as there to serve their purposes. So instead of knowing justice, they love evil and hate what is good. And then in verse 8, Micah says, But as for me, so Micah speaking of himself, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. And in contrast to Micah, it says in verse 9 that Israel's leaders despise justice and distort all that is right. And then in chapter 6, we left off at verse 8, but in verses 9 through 12, God gives evidence of their distorting justice and what is right. He says in verse 9, Listen, the Lord is calling to the city and to fear Your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget, O wicked house, your ill-gotten treasures? And the short ephah, which is accursed. In other words, they were shortchanging people. Shall I acquit a man with dishonest scales and with a bag of false weights? Her rich men are violent. Her people are liars. And their tongues speak deceitfully. They were oppressing the powerless exploiting workers. Their legal system had become corrupt. Israel was doing the opposite of justice. They were practicing injustice. Larry Martin with the International Justice Mission defines injustice this way. When somebody who has more power abuses that power, to take from someone with less power the good things that God intended for them, their life, their liberty, their dignity, the fruits of their love and their labor. That is injustice. On the other hand, to do 
justice is to, the, is to work for the establishment of equity for all, especially for the powerless. It's like the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag says, liberty and justice for all. And if justice isn't just for all, it's not justice. God is calling us to set right what is wrong in the world. That's what God's justice is all about. Redeeming the world from the corruption of sin wherever we may find it. You know, we tend to emphasize how God removes our personal sin when we put our faith in Christ, but we can't forget that God is at work eradicating all sin in the world, both personal and corporate. And so we as the church must be at the forefront of issues regarding justice for all people at all times in all places because every human being is created in the image of God and is someone for whom Jesus died. Act justly. Secondly, love mercy. Now that Hebrew word there for mercy is the word chesed. And that word chesed means loyal, steadfast love. It's the Old Testament version of grace. People sometimes want to say, well, there's no grace in the Old Testament. Yes, there is. It's hesed. And everywhere you see it, it is God's undeserved, extravagant covenant love for His people. And Micah 6.8 tells us that God expects us to have the same kind of grace-filled love for everyone. We are to love mercy, hesed, grace. It's easy to love people who are like us, though, isn't it? It's easy to love people who are going to return our love in kind. But throughout the Old Testament, God talks about and displays His love for the poor and the powerless, for orphans and widows, for lepers and immigrants. And God commands His people to love them as well. And in the New Testament, Jesus expands it even further that says, we're even supposed to love our enemies those who hate you, those who say all kinds of false things about you because of me, those who persecute you, love them as well. Today, Jesus might say that we are to love the homeless man, the un-single mom, the Muslim extremist, that really slow person driving in the fast lane on I-20, that Tennessee volunteer fan. We're supposed to love them all, Right? And it's not just a warm fuzzy. It's not just tolerating others. No, it's to love as Jesus loved, with sacrificial service. As Paul said, we are to consider the needs of others as more important than our own. That is hesed. God loved us that way so much that He sent His only Son to die on the cross and to bear your sins and mine so that if we believed in Him, we would not perish but have everlasting life. That is what it means to love mercy. And one way we need to be lovers of mercy is to love and care for the poor. People who are so different from us, who can't earn our love, who could never properly pay us back in any tangible sense for our love. And I believe that we as Americans have been so blessed by God that we can serve those in need. And I think about some practical ways that we as a church have done that. We've already heard this morning the ways that we have acted justly and loved mercy in Honduras by helping people 
with economic development, by giving them sanitary facilities, by providing them with clean water, by building schools and supplying them. We have been doing that ourselves. Maybe you could sponsor a child through, <coughs> excuse me, through HOI or through Compassion International or World Vision. Maybe you could volunteer to work at MANA or to help with Operation Christmas Child Shoeboxes or our bicycle ministry or our wheelchair ramp ministry or the Safe Home Basket Ministry. Maybe you could help purchase animals for families in other countries through Samaritan's Purse. Open your eyes. Prayerfully consider ways that you can do justice and love mercy at work, at school, in your neighborhood, as God gives you opportunity. I love the way the message puts Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. It says, watch what God does, and then you do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents, mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with Him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of Himself to us. Love like that. Act justly. Love mercy. And finally, walk humbly with your God. This describes the whole orientation of one's life, showing us how we ought to live day by day. There's a reason that when Jesus was calling people to, to Himself in the Gospels, He never walked up to Peter and, and James and John. He never walked up to people and said, Believe in Me. What did He say? Follow Me. He said, Follow Me. Because the call to salvation is the call to walk with Christ to follow in His ways, to live a daily life in the ways of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. And when we are living right with others, and when we're practicing justice and mercy, we will discover that we are walking with God. And it's not arrogant. It's not holier than thou, I'm better than you, I've got my life together. In fact, it's the opposite. When we discover through, we discover through being people of justice and mercy that we are dependent on God's justice and mercy as well. And so it's humbling. We walk humbly with our God. Because... We learn very quickly what Israel learned. If you look in verses 13 through 16, God spells out judgment if the people don't change. And guess what? They don't. And so the Assyrians come in and conquer and wipe away the northern kingdom in 701 B.C. The message of Micah is basically that no one can live up to God's demands. No one. Certainly not the demands the Israelites had. How many of you could sacrifice a thousand rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? That's a lot of Costco visits, right? 10,000 rivers of oil. No, we can't live up to those demands, but even worse than that, and those aren't the demands that God has for us. We can't live up for the demands God does have for us. To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God every day without fail. Basically what God is calling us to do is to reflect His image. To live our lives according to His definition of good and evil. But guess what? Because of sin, we can't do either of those. No one can. That is why Jesus Christ 
had to come and die on the cross. He is the one and only Son of God who did come as the firstborn Son sacrificed for our sins. It is the fruit of His body that pays for the sins of our soul. And that's what we remember at this table this morning. His blood shed for us. His body broken for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And so as we come to this table this morning, let us remember that on our own, we're all unjust. None of us love mercy. We're judgmental. We're self-centered. On our own, we're prideful and we're arrogant and we think we're self-sufficient. But through faith in Jesus Christ, God's Hesed, His steadfast covenant love for you and me that we cannot ever earn or deserve, His grace transforms us. And by His Spirit, He enables us to do justice. As we are shaped more and more into the image of Christ, we do find ourselves loving mercy and walking humbly with our God. This morning you are here and you may be thinking, you know, I don't know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I don't know this, this mercy and grace of God. Maybe this morning you need to say, I'm done with all the religiousness. I'm done with playing. I'm done with putting on the act. I need to come and throw myself at the mercy of of my holy God. Would you come this morning as we sing in a moment and give your life to Jesus Christ and experience His grace and His mercy, everything this table represents. Maybe this morning God is speaking to you to come and unite with this church family. Maybe before you come and bring your gift to the table and partake of this, maybe you need to make it right with somebody. Maybe there's some unconfessed sin in your life. Maybe there's some bitterness or, or anger or hurt that you're harboring towards someone else. This altar is here open for you to come and pray and do business with God before you come to the table. Let's use this time to examine ourselves. To make sure that our hearts are first and foremost humbly submitted to God before we partake of His Supper. Would you stand and sing with me?